This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Hi, Virtual Ryan. <laughs> Hi, Becca. Hi, Zoom Becca. You guys, what happened to <laughs> Skype? What is Zoom? When did this happen? We're living that Zoom life. So we're here. We're recording remotely for the first time. This is the first time that we'll have an episode where Ryan and I were not in the same room. The reason for that is COVID-19. Yes. The pandemic. Yes. And we're in San Francisco where we can't leave our homes. We were, I think, the first city to do that. In the U.S., I think, yeah. Yeah, like we haven't been able to leave our homes since Monday. I mean, I'm also recovering from a knee injury. So Ryan's heard this story, but listeners, I was riding my bike and my bike seat just decided to stop being a bike seat as I was riding at night in the middle of San Francisco and I fucked up my knee. Oh my and God. Yeah, well, I have like the flu or something. Um, yeah. I don't think I have COVID because I don't have a fever and only like 1% of people with COVID don't get a fever, but I have literally all of the other symptoms. Um, mm. And my doctor told me not to leave my house for two weeks. And then the quarantine was announced. And I was like, great, I'm not in this alone. <laughs> anyway, we watched an episode of Star Trek Picard. This episode is called Et in Arcadia Ego, part one. Did you look it up? I did. I looked it up. At yeah. In Arcadia Ego, I too am in Arcadia. What I found out is Arcadia is on this particular Grecian island, and it's very beautiful and tranquil, and like sheep are there. It's the home of the cod pan, but the I in the sentence is death. And yes. so it's like death comes to this beautiful land. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so it's a, um, well, what's that called? Uh, it's an Amori or whatever. Oh, a Memento Mori, yes. A Memento Mori. It's a reminder of death. I've heard a few different interpretations because this phrase has been used in um, several different works throughout history. Um, mm-hmm. One idea is that Arcadia is the wilderness because um, mm. it surrounds the city. And that the wilderness represents humanity. There's kind of an interesting irony there. The pastoral, somehow pastoral nature of the planet where there's synthetic life forms. So that's the name of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Where are we at the beginning? Aggie is cowering while they're going through the trans warp tube. Um, The Mm -hmm. whole ship is shaking. There are some cool visuals, and then they uh, get to Copelius. Also, oh, mm-hmm. I also, what's his face? Rios says puta madre, which means like the mother whore, or, like your mother's a whore. I think it's a, it's effectively motherfucker. Oh, they slip it in because it's in a different language. <laughs> I enjoy people cursing on television. Yeah. 
I'm into um, it. And I, I enjoy this character's, like, strong Chilean roots. I'm really pleased with Rios as a character and Santiago Cabrera as an actor. I think we've talked about that, obviously, but he's great. So, uh, yeah, so the rest of this this first scene, like, I enjoyed the laser light fun sounds. There's a Borg cube. There are flower ships. What I thought were mm-hmm. ships, I think that they're, like, self-defense missiles that power down ships above the planet and sink them into the planet. Yeah, they call them orchids, and they're really cool looking and super powerful because they somehow take down a Borg cube when they're like a tenth of the size of the Borg cube. Picard's sickness is discovered. Yeah, after they come out of the transwarp conduit, he like has a weird episode where he just says some nonsense. It sounds very poetic, but everybody on the ship is like, huh? And then he's like, oh, yeah, I have this brain thing that's going to kill me. So this is a suicide mission. Surprise! (laughs) He tells everyone um, not to treat him like he's sick or they will piss him off, which uh, almost slipped by me. But I also think piss, piss off is a little bit too graphic language to normally be in the mouth of Picard. Yeah, maybe he's uh, getting some bad habits hanging around all of these galactic delinquents. They do a nice little group download assessing mm-hmm. their situation, which um, I keep waiting for. Like, are they going to really act like a team? Are they going to ready room? And this really felt the most like that. Um, mm-hmm. They're like, we're on this planet. Soji lets them know how close they are to the city of Capalius or Capalius Station or something. Um, they talk about how close they are to the Borg Cube. They decide, like, are we going to go in one direction? Are we going to go in two directions? So they really have this nice little group talk. They decide to go as a group to the cube, uh, which is like hiking in the wrong direction from getting to Capalius. But apparently they don't really care about 93-year-old Picard. They're like, he's up for a multi-kilometer hike and backtracking. He's going to die soon anyway. Right. I mean, we predicted at the beginning of this that he's going to die in the course of Star Trek Picard. Uh, Elnor is very happy to see Picard alive. Seven is kind of unfazed. This whole scene is, first of all, it's like the fastest scene ever. They like get to the Borg cube, do the Borg cube stuff, and then they then they're all of a sudden saying goodbye again. I'm like, whoa, that was really that was really really quick. It's all very beautiful. This whole sequence. There's like this soft ethereal music as they walk to the cube. There's like beautiful instrumental music while they're at the cube. When even either when Seven appears or when she starts to say goodbye, they play the Voyager theme mm. in the background. And I also wanted to to bring in our fashion. Uh, our fashion show recapping and say Mm -hmm. that um, Seven's outfit in the scene, first of all, I love it. It's like this jumper dress on top of a t-shirt and she's wearing like gray and black tones. And Mm -hmm. remember when we did the episode on Unimatrix Zero Mm -hmm. and she was in the dreamscape as Annika and I was upset that they were all, that she was wearing pink and purple. Mm Mm-hmm. This is what I thought she should wear. In my head, I was like, she would wear 
soft cottons like this, like futuristic cotton clothes in this world, but she'd be wearing black and gray. And then when she was in this outfit, I was like, yes, this is what I was talking about. And so I was very, very happy to see her in this outfit. I was like, this is exactly what she would wear in this weather. Nice. When Picard says goodbye to Elnor, he says, I'm very proud of you. I may never see you again. Well, that's true of any two people who are saying goodbye. Picard. I'm very, very proud of you. So we're seeing the character growth that we've been looking for from him being this person who cares about all the people at large, but is like doing a bad job with the people in his life um, to expressing his emotions to the people who love him. Mm-hmm. So this was, this happens a few times in this episode, but this was the first moment. And Elnor stays with her. Elnor does stay with her. His prime directive, his like central compass is to be aligned with lost causes or essentially whoever needs him the most. Mm-hmm. And he's now, you know, he's looking at Picard and he's surrounded by this whole team of people and he thinks that he's more needed here. I also think he has a little bit of like a childlike crush on Seven. Yeah, that she's like the badass that he wants to be one day. Yeah, yeah. Like the way that he asked her if she was going to assimilate him was almost with admiration, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the way he mm-hmm. looks at her, he just seems totally in awe. And he's kind of primed to be drawn to the women who are in charge, who are wise and take no bullshit, right? Because that's like who raised him. Absolutely. Absolutely. He, he's let go of like his daddy issues. <laughs> he's back, back to his mommy issues. Yes. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about Picard's outfit in this scene. He's basically dressed like Han Solo. He has a vest on on top of a collarless shirt that folds open in the same way that Han Solo's shirts fold open. Go back and watch Mm. the scene. It's amazing. I did not catch that. I was like, from a costume perspective, I was much more fixated on what the the synthetics were wearing Mm. after we get to Capaleus. I was also concerned that nobody chooses to wear a hat when they go hiking in this really hot desert. Maybe there are no hats in space. There's no hats in space. It makes me sad. I love hats. I mean, Rios wore that amazing hat in Space Vegas. Yeah, no functional hats. (laughs) Only decorative hats. I'm just saying, as a public service announcement to the world at large, via our listeners, if you're going outside and it's hot and sunny... Wear a hat. Okay, so they're they're on this hike. They're hatless. Eventually, they get to Capalius. Apparently, robots do Tai Chi, and they dress like they're at the yoga camp at Burning Man. Yeah, I know people keep saying that Picard doesn't feel like Star Trek, but this felt so much like a classic away mission to me. Like, we're visiting mm-hmm. a planet, but that planet is essentially like one city, And that one city is essentially, like, one building and, like, a yard. (laughs) And, like, that is what's happening at Capalia Station. This whole society is actually just, like, a really small campus. Yeah. Actually, when when they were talking about whether or not to split up, I was like, what is away mission policy as to whether or not you need to stay in your group? 
because it felt like an away mission. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. A lot of them are gold. Yes. So they're like kind of, they're like, I think supposed to indicate the transitional like construct between data and the fully like human looking and appearing synthetics or androids. When do we, do we call them synthetics or androids? Does it matter? They seem to be calling themselves synthetics. I don't know why. Data definitely considered himself an android. Zoom always called them androids. It seems to be some sort of like nomenclature shift that's happened. I mean, it's gender neutral, so that's good. Android's not gender neutral. Android's not gender neutral, technically. Uh, Gynoid is the female version of android. And I know you hate that word. I do, because it sounds like gynecology. (laughs) Wait, but can you explain why? Because andro means man and gyno means woman from like the construction of the word from from its roots. Oh, okay. Speaking of Dr. Soong, we also meet a person who is played by Brent Spiner. Yes. Dr. Alton Inigo Soong. Yes. And he's Dr. Noonien Soong's son. Yeah. Biological son. Yeah. I feel like I almost called this. I was so close. I was like, Noonien Soong is going to come back. He's going to be an android. It's going to happen in the later episodes. I knew they were bringing him back, but I I was wrong. I was off, but I was so close. You were really close. And I think that I honestly think that it would make more sense from like an age perspective alone for it to be Dr. Noonien Soong, because... When, like, at no point in the TNG canon or, like, the the movies did we have any hint about Dr. Soong having a biological child. When did he, when did he have this child? Where was this child? I mean, I can, it wasn't with Juliana Tanner, Tanner, Tamor, I don't. Whatever her name is. Like, she would have mentioned if she had a real child or if she'd, like, taken that real child with her. So it must have been from, like, a first wife who I have I have no idea. But if there's anything we know about Dr. Soong, it's that he was kind of secretive. Uh, that's true. He's kind of secretive. I guess I was thinking, like, if Dr. Soong actually had a child, he would probably be in his, like, 40s or 50s. And maybe we're just supposed to believe that Brent Spiner is in his 40s or 50s. I don't know. Whatever. I, yeah, Brent Spiner was definitely in his 60s, right? Um, I could look that up. I don't know if I care. Um, <laughs> I'm doing it anyway because I have my phone in my No, because like da- Data was in his like 40s when he died and it's been about 20 years. So he's 71. He's 71? Oh, he looks good. He's 71. Oh, and Patrick Stewart is 79. I feel like we have been confused about Patrick Stewart's actual age this whole time. But his character is 93. Yes. You found that out. His physical human body as Patrick Stewart is 79. Yeah, his character is 93 because he was supposed to be like 58 or 59 when TNG started, even though he was like in his 40s. Do you have any other thoughts about Dr. Alton Inigo Soong? Just that I fucking love Brent Spiner. He's so great. I'm so glad they brought him back. Like, this is amazing. He's created a golem, which is like a uh, lifeless automaton body 
um, Mm -hmm. that he wants to bring to life. There's a whole thing about golems in Cavalier and Clay from like Mm -hmm. Jewish mythology. Michael Chabin continuing on his like uh, fascination with golems. And Mm -hmm. uh, you assume that he's going to put his consciousness into it, that that's the goal which is also from that novel I read where the elder Dr. Soong put his consciousness into an android body. But maybe it will be Sir Patrick Stew who goes in there, and that's how Ooh. we'll get around Picard's death. Uh-huh. So those are, my, those are my thoughts on him. Yeah, no, I like that it was called a golem. I'm like, there you go, Michael Shabin. And I... Uh, I'm curious to know, like, she looked at it and she was immediately, or she being Aggie, like, looked at it and immediately identified that it was supposed to be for this, like, mind transfer. And I'm like, how do you know that just off the bat? I feel like she just knows a lot of shit, you know? Like, when when um, Commander O was like, chew this blue triangle, she knew it was a tracker. <laughs> Like, how mm-hmm. does she know that? She just knows a lot of stuff. And she also knew, she like, stuff. what compound to take to disable the tracker. Like, how does she... I don't know, man. I feel like she keeps up with the scientific journals. They're trying to fit a lot in. So I was super into gold soji. Yeah. Sutra. Sutra. You had some cool thoughts about Sutra as a name for this character. Yeah, so, uh, you know, most listeners might be familiar with the word sutra from uh, the Kama Sutra or from Mm -hmm. uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. In Hindu and, like, yogic texts, a sutra is a small bit of language, like an aphorism, like a few lines, a sentence. And so when they're collected together, they are, like, sutras. And you study each of these sentences and try to get meaning from them. And so sutra literally means um, a thread or a suture. So the idea Mm. is like when you pull a thread, like from a sweater, if you want to destroy my sweater, um, (laughs) when you pull on the thread, the stitch undoes and you get all this, you get more information. So as you pull the thread, it expands. So when you pick apart these sentences, it's like these complex units of like compact information. Sutra, uh, like data or lore, is named after a type of written form of information collection, um, as mm-hmm. a lot of these characters are like Arcana and uh, who's the other one? Saga. And then her sister who died, uh, Jana. Um, Jana in Sanskrit means either person, like a human, or it can just mean generating. So the word has two meanings. So it's either like hmm. creation or like a creation, like a human. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So she's not named after a type of text or data collection, but she is also she also had a Sanskrit name. Well, so I think that we get a little bit more information about Jana, and she was, I think she was the first like iteration of this current set of synthetics, mm-hmm. and so it would make sense for her to have a slightly different nomenclature than the rest of them. I wonder what her companion, beautiful flower, looked like. 
Remember, like, which face I was know. His? I was kind of imagining that he had Brent Spiner's face. I was hoping that we would find mm-hmm. that out. One thing that I thought was really interesting about Sutra is that she can mind meld. Mm-hmm. Dr. Soong number two is telling all of us the wonders of Sutra. And it felt kind of weird, kind of like, look at my shiny car. <laughs> but she is shiny because she's painted gold. And she's like somehow developed the ability to mind meld, which to me, like from uh, internal mechanics of the functions of mind melds and also from the functions of synthetic beings does not compute but I guess I have to work on my suspension of disbelief to just like accept that this is possible. So um, I hate to just be like the recapper of Michael Shabin's Instagram, but someone asked him <laughs> basically what you're saying. And he was like, look, mind melding, like anything else is a biological process. The Vulcans can do it and uh, non-Vulcan species can't do it because of their particular biology. And that can be synthetically replicated like any other kind of biology. Mm. And then he was also like, so, and somebody, they were like, you know, it's a biological process. And, but his first sentence was like, so Vulcans have always led us to believe. So it could also be like other species could learn how to do this, but Vulcans have told us that they can't. Oh, so okay. so either because she was programmed that way, and or because of her fascination with Vulcan culture, she has been able to train herself to do this. Okay, I accept that. I highly recommend following this man on Instagram if you get nothing else from our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I appreciate you recounting what he's told. I and mean, you're just like, here's the information that you actually care about. I yeah. like that. I like a curator. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I read all of it. I'll tell you the good bits. <laughs> yes. I hated her outfit. Oh, I barely remember what she was wearing. I do remember that she had, like, a longer wig. She has a longer wig. Yes. And then she had some blue in her hair. And that um, uh, Issa Briones totally changed like the composure of how she held her face so that she just generally looked more hostile and less uh, soft the whole time. Mm -hmm. I was impressed. Yeah, the acting was really good in even even through the gold paint and the green eye contacts and like all that stuff. Um, (laughs) But the outfit was this like coral jumpsuit with waist cutouts and I just, I don't know, I felt like the waist hit her in the wrong place, and the big gold thing in the middle, like, looked really heavy, and it was just like, ugh, the costumes in this uh, in this series have been firing on all cylinders up to this point, and I am, like, not into this weird Burning Man yoga camp. <laughs> I have a situation. really hard time predicting which costumes you're gonna like and which ones you won't. It did feel much more, like, woman on an away mission in TOS or TNG to me. So it mm. felt right. I'm not saying I would wear it, <laughs> but I was yeah, like, this is what I expect a woman on an away mission planet to be wearing. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking, can we take a little break and I need to plug my computer in? Okay. 
Starfleet Command, this is Jean-Luc Picard transmitting on a secure hyperfrequency. I have a first contact situation and a priority request to establish diplomatic negotiations and to protect the inhabitants of Gurlian 4 from an incoming Romulan attack. Welcome back. All right. So... So we learn that Sutra is able to mind meld because she wants to mind meld with evil Aggie. And her theory, which I'm not sure where she got this theory from, but I buy it, is that the admonition was not designed for human minds. It was designed for synthetic minds. And that's why it's been driving Romulans crazy for centuries. And that mm-hmm. she will be able to make sense out of the admonition. So she mind melds with Aggie, um, with Aggie's permission this time, although it does feel like there's a lot of pressure behind it. Mm-hmm. And we're finally able to see the images that we've been getting flashes of for the last several episodes um, slowed down in sequence with some narration. Organic life and synthetic life will arrive at war or the brink of war and call on us and we will come protect you from the organics. Yeah. And there's a lot here. So they say at first it's like, oh, it's actually a warning to the synthetics that the organics are going to try to destroy you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like their logic is organics will become afraid of you when they realize that you won't die. And um, they will try to destroy you once they are scared and threatened. And so then you're like, oh, the organics are the bad guys, not the synthetics. And then they're like, so when this happens, call us and we'll show up and kill them for you. And you're like, oh, wait, what? Not only will we defend and protect you, but we will then like carry out the decimation and destruction of the organics that are just hanging out in your universe. Oh, yeah. Like, it's very... All of them. The fact that the Romulans have been interpreting this as an apocalypse prediction is not far off, actually. Yeah, like, their interpretation was way wrong, but it was also right. <laughs> hmm Yes. <laughs> and... But I think that... I- I think that the point that I've been making for the last few episodes holds true yes. that they are bringing about their own destruction because if they weren't sending 218 warbirds to destroy this planet, right? the urgency to call in this, like the synthetic protectors of the universe wouldn't happen. It wouldn't yeah. be necessary. You were, I mean, you were right on all fronts. As I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what Becca has been saying. And not only is it exactly what you've been saying about the Romulans, but what you've been saying about the Romulans is also true of the synthetics, of the people who made this admonition, right? That mm-hmm. they're like the reason that the Romulans are trying to kill the synthetics is because they saw the admonition. And if they hadn't put the warning there, this wouldn't be happening. Right. So it's like this classic Greek tragedy of you get a, um, not a premonition, um, you get a a prophecy. You receive a prophecy and then you run around trying to avoid the prophecy. And in so doing, you fulfill the prophecy. 
Yes. And so it's like the stuff of sci-fi time travel. It's the stuff of Greek tragedy. It's this very, very old story. And at the moment, it's mm-hmm. true for all of these characters, the people who created the admonition, the people who've seen it, both the Romulans and the Cylons. And the Star Trek Cylons. <laughs> you should call them Cylons. I mean, you know. Yes. And the only person who could stop it, it seems like, is JL. Somehow. Our man Jean-Luc. The rescue. Although it's also kind of his fault, right? Well, he brought her there. Exactly. Yes. He brought all of them there. He brought Aggie there. He saved Soji. Soji just would have died. They would have gone and wiped all of them out. Um, so he, again, might be the destroyer of humanity, just like he was mm-hmm. at the end of TNG. Oh, bum, bum, bum. So, anyway, there's <laughs> there's a lot going on here. I'm frustrated with everyone. What happens? What happens next? I think next we get the scene with the golem, which we've already talked about a little bit. But the only thing mm-hmm. I'd add is that uh, new Doctor Soong uh, shames her a little bit. He's like, "Shame on you, evil Aggie, for killing your ex boyfriend and my BFF." And she's mm-hmm. like, "I know that was bad." And he's like, "Well, now you can help me." And then we get. Soji and Sutra arguing about whether or not it's right to call all of these people and kill mm-hmm. all of humanity. Sutra is making kind of the classic villain's error, which is an inability to see a solution where not everybody dies, mm-hmm. which is an error that the Romulans have already made. So that she, they're probably right. But it's kind of like a lack of imagination also. And then Narek. Narek is what the cat dragged in. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's this great moment where we see spot number two, which is a synth- oh, yeah. synthetic cat. And- oh, Rios lost some points in this scene to me when he said that he's not a cat person. That's exactly what I wrote down. <laughs> that's exactly i wrote rios doesn't like cats he's a monster no longer hot (laughs) i'm really pleased that we had the same thought about that (laughs) even my husband likes cats and he's allergic oh my god uh but yeah he then does like the the cat uh or i think it yeah it cuts from they're like look what the cat dragged in and then it cuts to the synthetic cat okay Mm -hmm. all right i was confused uh, no, it's all good, though, but I like that parallel, because these two things happen simultaneously. Narek's thrown in the brig, or what is effectively the brig. It's like a atrium. Yeah, they're like, we've never had a prisoner before, so we're just going to erect a force field on the side of this building and put him there. <laughs> Let's put him in this really well-lit room where he can see everything that's going on. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, also in here is um, a moment... Where Rafi and Jean-Luc are, like, deciding to part ways. I think she and uh, she and Rios have decided to go back to repair the ship to, like, prepare for, like, the upcoming battle. And so, yeah, so he was saying goodbye to Aggie, and that's when we get the he doesn't like cats thing. And then, yeah, then, so what do you think about the right. Rafi and Picard scene? I thought it was really touching. She says, she hugs him. She's like, I know this is against regulations, but she hugs him. And then 
they have a little conversation and she's like, and um, I love you. Gio. I'm sorry. I'm breaking the rules. Rafi? No, no, just... After everything that you've done for me, I need to say thank you. I love you, Jaya. Oh, you don't have to say it back to me. I, just... I don't. Not unless you want to. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's no, fine. It's, it's fine. Okay. Okay. I love you too, Rafi. It might be the first time I've ever heard Jean Luc Picard use the words "I love you." Yeah, she looks like shocked when he says it. I once again hats off to Michelle Hurd. Is she the beauty and like also heartbreak on her face? Ugh, she's she's knocking it out of the park. Yeah, she's such a good actress. Yeah, I had to watch the scene twice to figure out what was happening because I was like, wait, are they? I always think everyone's into each other. I'm like, are they into each other? That's not what's happening. Um, I think that the show did a good job of laying the groundwork for this for new viewers because we recently had Picard explaining that he didn't even know if he loved Data, even though like everything in this whole series has been about how much he misses Data. So it's obviously mm-hmm. he loved Data. Um, but it's not, he, he's recently reminded us that it's not something he expresses to other people. And he's finally, uh, at a place either because he's fulfilling his character arc and like setting aside his arrogance and like getting in touch with his own emotions or, um, because he has this disease of senility. (laughs) Well, I think she says it not only because they're parting ways, but because she thinks that he's going to die before she sees him again. Yeah, she's breaking the rule of uh, don't treat him like a dying man. And it's really moving. Yeah, it's also really sweet because she's forgiven him. At the beginning of the series, there was no way she was going to forgive him for um, everything that happened before the series started. And now in this moment, like, you know that she has. That's true. On the, like, as much as I love this scene and I'm into this, like, arc, I was also at the time while I was watching it wondering, like, is this earned? Like, has he actually done the contrition, demonstrated that he's learned the lesson that he needed to learn? And I'm not sure that he has. I'm not sure that he has with her. Like, in how he's Mm. treated her. Um, But maybe she's just grown, and she's forgiven him. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that we've seen him grow in the way that he's softened towards Soji and Elnor. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure that he's done his penance with her. Honestly, I think you're right, but maybe she's just being the bigger person. Which I appreciate. I think it's believable like we forgive people often regardless of whether or not they've actually earned it and i'm putting that in quotes because forgiveness is also something that you do for yourself yeah um as a way to let go of the pain of whatever it was the wrong that was done to you 
So. So the next scene, we see Picard trying to use their facilities to contact Starfleet and ask permission to establish diplomatic relations um, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, treating the synthetics as like a first contact situation and al- also ask for reinforcements. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like he made contact. We don't see anyone receive that message. Yeah, I'm not sure if he got through or not, but he's definitely calling the cavalry. Dr. Fuckboy asks for water. He's asking for water and he's admonishing Saga about um, the treatment of prisoners. And she's like, well, how do you treat your prisoners, Romulans? (laughs) And he's like, oh, don't don't ask about that. Yeah, she's not even being sarcastic. She genuinely wants to know. (laughs) And he's like, never mind. Yeah, I think her her curiosity and her... So she's definitely played as a naive innocent, one who's kind of uh, guileless in essentially the next scene when she's stabbed in the eye. You're like even more like, oh, this one didn't need to die because she didn't know what was going on anyway. Like other... I think Sutra is much more calculating. It's interesting because I see a lot of echoes of data in the way that both Arcana and Saga are portrayed. Yes. And then Sutra is giving me major lore vibes. Ooh, yeah. So Sutra killed Saga, right? Sutra Not 100% killed Saga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sutra killed Saga um, in order to frame the death on Narek. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Fuckboy, if you've been listening to us and not watching the show and forget who Narek is, looking <laughs> at you, Becca's dad. <laughs> um, my dad is now caught up with the show, so I can no longer call him out. Um, nice. Yeah, so uh, she frees Narek in order to frame Saga's death on Narek and rally the troops to her cause. Mm-hmm her decision to call the big bad behind the message. And if it looks like, look, we trusted one organic, we gave him mercy and he killed somebody. It's going to get everyone to support her, especially Soji. Yeah. So she's, she's machinating very much like lore. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like, Later, she gathers everybody and uh, kind of pontificates. Before we get there, there's also a scene between Soji and Picard where they talk about sacrifice. I, I This is sort of a tangent thought, but I wanted to hear what you thought about this. Like watching Soji develop um, and learning about Sutra and then also thinking about Aggie and her journey, even Michelle Hurd, who is like this character that we see being mostly good, but she's an addict, but maybe she was a bad mother. None of the women in this series are easy, easily categorized into either being good characters or bad characters. Like even Sutra, who seems kind of evil, definitely has like the best interests of her people at heart, 
even if she kills one of her people, she's doing it to like save the rest of them. Well, it's a very ends driven kind of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Where you just like whatever means necessary, including murder, are going to get you to what you like believe is best for people, best for your people. I was just thinking about how Star Trek is, in my nostalgic recollection, very focused on what you do in the moment, the action that you take in the moment, regardless of focusing on what the end result is going to be. And oh, absolutely. so I think that this sh- I think the show is commenting on that and like giving us a more complex set of characters to grapple with and be like, well, we don't know that like the right ethical choice in the moment isn't always clear. Yeah, for sure. I, I think you're right that that old school vision of what you do in the moment needs to be your guiding post is definitely where Star Trek has usually come down on um, like, what is the correct, what is the highest moral mode of behavior? What is the standard we need to hold ourselves to? Um, especially Jean-Luc Picard, um, especially Captain Kirk. In Deep Space Nine, it get a little blurrier. And then Archer just goes like full on ends justify the means. But I think more what I'm, I think Picard is still taking that position of um, like how you act in the moment, like who you are matters most. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I'm commenting yeah. on more is just that the wi- the way women are written in this show is much more complicated and nuanced and complex than we've seen women in Star Trek before. Maybe with the exception of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. And it's one of the things that I really like about this show and and also about Discovery is that they're not like they're they're writing complicated whole people, whole person, women, female mm-hmm. characters. I don't know what the right like set of <laughs> words there is, but gynoids. Um, Gynoids. <laughs> Obviously the right word. Obviously. Um, but yeah, they're they're complex. They like get to make hard choices. They get to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to have a lot of conversations that are like grappling with hard questions, which is not, yeah, historically in Trek, not really what the female characters were allowed to do. No, no. I mean, I think especially in TNG where like often Troy and Beverly almost seemed like morally superior to the men on the station. They also were not put into positions where they had to grapple with difficult ethical quandaries. Like that's a, that's the the difference in the writing is that that these female characters in Picard are put into those situations mm-hmm. and then and then writers have to figure out what to do with them once they're there versus the writers on TNG or like uh, I mean I don't think TOS even like needs mentioning here is that they were they were never given those scenarios to be in in the first place. Absolutely, yeah. I think it relates back to this conversation that Soji and Picard were having where they are talking when they're talking about sacrifice um and she's like soji's like what is the logic of sacrifice i don't know i mean so she she talks about how aggie killed um bruce maddox and now regrets it 
Um, but at the moment, she thought she was doing the right thing. And Picard is like, did she think that she was doing the right thing? Or did she think that it was the only choice? Yeah. And then they talk about fear, you know, mm. like how a lot of this is acting out of fear instead of acting rationally. But like, what if you have right. to protect and people? So like Soji like almost gets to where Picard is and then like comes back around to the fear side. And like you see mm-hmm. her sort of talking herself into Sutra's perspective. It's a good example of a female character getting to grapple with something that's very complex and doesn't have an easy answer. And then we go to this gathering where Sutra's like, y'all, Saga just got murdered by that one Romulan. And now we know about the admonition slash the destroyer slash our saviors. We better call them and like destroy all organic life. Basically, everybody's on board, but Picard still tries to argue them to a different position. He's like, trust me, trust in the Federation. We will accept you as a new form of life and defend you. And it's so sad because like, even I don't believe him at this point. She And they say a couple things is like, I'm not like you, Picard. I will rescue those I can rescue. And that this can't be your means for redemption. So she's really like sticking it to him. Whatever you're saying right now isn't trustworthy because it's been proven wrong. Right. Yeah. And this show has shown us again and again instances of Picard speechifying and promising to save people and then not actually following through. So even though Mm -hmm. those of us who've watched all of TNG like want to believe him in recent past, he has not been as effective and these people don't trust him. Even though we know that, like, Commander Karen, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Admiral um, Clancy, Admiral Clancy, uh, does believe him now. It's they don't know that. We know that, but they don't they, know that. And then also, that. like, even if they do come, I don't think it's necessarily like that they will be successful. The Romulan force that's coming is a really high-powered military force. I don't know what the Federation's got going on right now, but I think that there's, like, a decent chance that they wouldn't prevail in a battle anyway. That Borg cube is going to get back online, and they're going to call the other Borg. That's like the deus ex machina that's going to come in and save everybody. (laughs) I think they're definitely going to get the Borg cube back online. The Borg cube's going to be in this fight somehow. Yes, I don't know that the rest of the Borg are going to come down, but I would fucking love that. Yeah. And they would be like, we're both of you. Can't you all just get along? And it would be like the Godzilla Uh movie where Godzilla is actually the hero. Oh. (laughs) I don't think that's what's going to happen, but it would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah. And then they haul Picard off to put him in the brig, I guess. And Aggie begs not to be locked up. She's essentially like, I'm on your guys' side. I regret what I did before. My whole life has been, like, to support beings like you. And uh, you should let me stay here and help old Brent Spiner. And Brent Spiner's like, yeah, 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 let her stay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, She's basically your mom. And she's like, yeah, I'm basically your mom. Sutra's like, would you die for us? And she's like, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) and i at this point i have no idea what's going on with her i'm like wait is she genuine and she's on their side now or crossing fingers like maybe she's gonna like sabotage this and is like no 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 trust me because i'm like 
I have no idea what to think of her at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, she keeps being like, I need to repent. I need to like make up for what I've done. And But maybe she's like, if I save all of humanity, they won't put me in jail. Or maybe she's like, oh, if all of humanity dies, they won't put me in jail. <laughs> like, I don't know what she wants. <laughs> Uh, I don't know either. It is hard to parse her motivation because she's proved to be so good at duplicity. Yeah. Um, she went from being yeah. so guileless and innocent seeming to now I don't trust anything she says. This is what I'm talking about. Well, we shall see. Oh, man. I what Did you have other thoughts about this episode? I think that Narek actually is in love with Soji. Yes. And I think that he hates himself for it. I, I don't think that that's like, yes. I think everyone probably got that from how he's playing it, but I just wanted to comment on it. Like, I'm now convinced he does love her and he's also a piece of shit. Yes, I agree. I think, I and I, and I still don't think that he would have chosen a more noble path, even outside of being offered to like take the blame for this murder I don't think that he would step in to defend the synthetics to the rest of the Romulans. Like, I just don't, I I don't see him doing that even to prove his love for her. No, I'm not sure what what he wants. He just really wants her to believe that he loves her, uh, which is selfish. Yeah. So I'm kind of retracting my he's on the redeemed by the love of a woman arc. I think he's not. He could have been. redeemed. Could have been the the seeds were there, and I think part yeah. of the part of the art of the storytelling is for us to think that he's on that path, and then for him to actually not be. Yeah, yeah. It also, I'm not sure how I feel about Sutra, sort of like sitting on top of him as she decides to free him, like sexually mm. toying with him. Women just sort of like taking sexual liberties with Narek again and again as a way of showing their power is an interesting motif in this series. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't picked up on that, but you're really right. It is very reminiscent of how his sister was treating him. And must be confusing for him, right? Because she looks like the woman that he loves. Like now I'm like down a down kind of a mental rabbit hole about evil women almost always demonstrated to be evil by some like sexual manipulative behavior. So now I'm just like, oh, why can't we get out of this trope? Yeah, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that men are much better. I think that that is often deployed in both directions. Hmm. Yeah, and I think in a I world, think you're right? Like in this world, but I think in that which, there's. Sorry. I I was just gonna say I think there's more breadth of ways that men are allowed to demonstrate their villainy. Sure. Yeah. I was also just going to say in this world where there's a lot of different ways that women have expressed their sexuality, um, including Mm. like Aggie using it as a coping mechanism and uh, Soji having like genuine love for someone earlier in the series, showing a woman with sexual desire um, or sexual uh, sexuality. Uh, Mm -hmm. as part of her evil characterization doesn't bother me as much because it's not the only way that we see female sexuality framed. It's like part of a spectrum, so I find it less problematic. I mean, I I agree with you, and I'm not, I don't really think it's such a problem in this series, but I will counter with, 
of the women who we encounter who are villains or antagonists in this show, there's Sister Fuckboy, there's Sutra now. Yeah. Oh, oh and there's also Bejazel, right? Yeah. And so all three of these in yes. some way or other are using their sexuality to communicate that they are villains. Right. And and oh, who's not using her sexuality, but who is violating people. I think both arguments can stand, you know, side by side. Um yeah, and so for me, the only other thought that I have about this episode is kind of more about last week's episode where we talked about the Ibn Majid, and I was like, what is that a reference to? So I looked it up, um, and Ibn Majid was a explorer and a navigator um, who guided Vasco da Gama. Hmm. Um, he's one of these, like famed explorers of the 13th or 14th, 14th or 15th century. I'm bad at centuries. Anyway, so he's, he's a famous Arab explorer. um, And I just thought it was cool to have a ship named after him. Oh, yeah, I think I also wanted to talk about um, arroz con leche, which is not just rice and milk, but is actually rice pudding. And um, it's like a classic... Spanish lullaby that has different verses depending on your specific culture or background. There are a lot of different verses around going around the internet. Um, the specific verses that he was singing uh, were Chilean because his character is Chilean. And there was also just like this really sweet outpouring of love about this from people on Twitter and on Reddit being like, my mother sang this to me and it's in Star Trek and I just like squeed. And so I think it's just really awesome. Like the representation that is happening in the newer Star Trek shows and how more people feel included in this future. And it's like in the future, you will still be there. You will still, your culture will still be there. You'll still exist. And it's lovely. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's like, so one of the things that one of the conversation topics in like the corporate diversity discussion mm-hmm. um, exists a lot around inclusion. So like in, in corporate world now, it's like diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do we get a diverse population? How do we make sure that they're served equally? And how do we make sure that they're all, they all feel included? Um, and one of the differences between diversity and inclusion is like you see a brown person versus there's a there's a brown person there and their culture comes with them mm-hmm. and it's accepted. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm using brown person here pretty broadly. <laughs> sure. Um, but basically somebody who is not from the dominant culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a conversation that started in Star Trek around the time of TNG, especially with mm. the Borg being the villain and assimilation being the ultimate evil. Um, but it's not something that we actually saw Star Trek acting on until more recently. So even though they were like mm-hmm. using that language and engaging in that dialogue in the 90s, um, we're actually seeing more inclusion um, and representation in like the main cast in the way that characters are depicted. I mean, this is what I was talking about a season or two ago when I was saying like, I want to see a Jewish character in Star Trek 
And you were Mm -hmm. like, well, there isn't really a lot of human religion. And I was just like, well, that's not really what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to see like a Jewish character with like a Jewish name, like, you know, throwing some Yiddish around the way we have uh, Rios uh, cursing in Spanish. I'm, I think I've come around to that argument also because you reminded me that Christmas is canon in a Star Trek universe. It like is. We could have somebody lighting Hanukkah candles. I don't believe in God and I am Jewish and I still practice like a lot of the, you know, the traditions to keep the culture itself alive. And it's a different like it's yeah, it's less about religion mm-hmm. in the in the idea that you have to have a belief in a higher power, but like more about the ties the culture the rituals and the practices that bring us together absolutely create common understanding yeah yeah maybe we can talk about this more when we um do a crossover with star trek and the jews oh yeah i would Uh, love that it's in the works so go check out their podcast in the meantime star trek and the jews i i have a shout out i wanted to thank a life-size replica of Skylark? Skylixark? Um, for saying Intertractional does a better job of recapping, recapping and examining Star Trek Picard than the official CBS podcast does on Twitter. <laughs> All the way from oh my South God. Wales. New South Wales. Very exciting. Well, what did um, you say that their name was again? A life-size replica of Sky LX. RK. So it's like Skylark with a with an X. Mm. Um my babies, Intertrekkies, take care of yourselves. Um go outside, get some fresh air, stay six feet away from everyone else, and uh keep binging Star Trek. And uh I hope you guys are all doing all right and staying healthy and uh relaxing and like mentally taking care of yourselves. Um during this period of time. And I just want to add to that. I'm binging a lot of TV. Try not to heap judgment on yourself if you're also doing that. I know it's hard for me to not like make myself a terrible person when I am, but also I can't go outside. I love television. That's why we created this podcast. Television is not a bad thing, especially if you're watching narrative television. The whole premise of this podcast is that it has something to teach, to teach us. Yeah. yeah. Don't self-shame. Not helpful. All right, guys. We should wrap up. <laughs> Becca. I love you. We love you. I love you and I miss you. I love you too. Uh, live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalese and Becca Motola-Barnes. Original music by Danny Kavka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. We want to hear from you. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. If you like this podcast, you can help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really really helps. You can donate to us at paypal.me slash federation and fempire, or you can become a member of our member feed on podfan, that is pod.fan slash intertractional. Yeah. I'm going to stop recording. Wait, I want to talk to you.